If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than 4 billion in company approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hi, and welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Connie Loises, joined today by TechCrunch's Danny Crichton. Hi. Hey, Danny. And Crunchbase News is Alex Wilhelm. Hello. Hello. Our guest this week is the wonderful Venki Ganesan of Menlo Ventures. Venki, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. This week, as is always the case, we have a lot to go over, despite the fact that it is mid-December. Um, I think the big story of this week is probably safe to say, aside from the economy, which we will get to, is SoftBank, SoftBank, SoftBank. Danny, I know that we've seen a bunch of gigantic new deals this week. Do you want to sort of lead us off? Absolutely. It's clearly a week in which SoftBank should just open a drive through in Palo Alto that like if you have a startup <laughs> and you have like a Tesla, you can just get a free $300 million financing. Uh, it'll be faster than in and out But they're going to um, make it easier. Yeah, so- they're going to have a helicopter <laughs> and just throw out cash all over Palo Alto. Uh, and, and they'll fund the helicopter. I mean, they'll fly you there. So, so clearly, this has been a week of SoftBank news. So we've had three massive deals announced, uh, you know, days before Christmas. But um, the first was a company called Fair. Um, they're based in LA, Santa Monica, uh, raised a $385 million round from SoftBank. Um, they do what? Online car auctions. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's a used car subscription service, actually. So they buy used vehicles from dealerships and then rent them out through an app. Um, and so apparently SoftBank sort of uh, got to know the company well because this company, Fair, actually bought... Um, Uber's leasing business, which I don't think it was doing terribly well with. That's right. Um, and so, uh, yes, yeah, so so SoftBank came in, and how much did they give them again? Uh, Three hundred eighty-five million. million. Okay, so the company, I guess, has raised about five hundred million to date. That's uh, a lot of money for a company that I haven't heard of until today. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. You know, interestingly, it also has a. It's the company is only two years old, and it's already separately raised uh, before this round a billion dollars in debt too. Well, uh, Scott Painter, who's the founder of the company, is well known. He did a previous car. The, there's a right, theme right, to this. car. He took that company. Yeah, he public. did true yeah, car. car and mm-hmm. cinema, yeah. Look, there's a there's a broad theme to this, and as crazy as it feels, where SoftBank is SoftBank is throwing out money. Mm-hmm. If you see, it's all auto-related. So in addition to their ride-sharing, they were they are three hundred million in Get Around, which is a Menlo company. Right. So, and then they did Fair, and then they did Cambridge, and I think it's all connected to a broader theme around autos and cars. Sure. So I think the play here is the assumption is that people are going to not own cars at some point. They're going to want to sort of get their car somewhere or the other. And this is an opportunity to sort of just rent a car for a you know, matter of days. I think you can rent it as long as you want, as long as you give the, the company five days notice that you plan to return it. So they've built up a fleet of like 20,000 cars, I think I read Whoa, somewhere. 20,000 cars? I guess yes. that's what the debt was for. Makes sense. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Um, so they buy these used cars from dealerships. They've got uh, the cars in 25 cities around the country. Um, and I guess the plan is just to sort of, right, use more of the money to keep buying the cars and hope that, you know, eventually people will be able to order whatever kind of used car they want. Um, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think mm-hmm. with fair you can buy the car. So you rent the car and then if you decide you want to buy it. Oh, is that right? I didn't right, realize that. So you actually can buy the car from fair which is a little different. So, for example, get around, you only rent the car from mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and then you rent it on an hourly basis. I think with FAIR, you get to keep it and may even buy it. Okay. Well, and I mean, good. they have infinite money to try that around. So if they want to change that business model, they have the flexibility to do so because I hear $385 million goes a long way. 
even in 2018 or 2019, <laughs> I guess now. I guess also there's, you know, this is more uh, SoftBank talks a lot about, you know, these sort of data driven companies and FAIR is talking about how it's able to build a financial profile of users um, on the back end. So I guess to rent a car, all you really need is a proof of a driver's license and a uh, either a credit card or bank account details, which is interesting. But I guess because they're sort of fairly small sums of money um, to rent the car, say for a month, um, I, I think the, the weekly rate starts at like $130. They can do that, but once they start, you they you become a customer of theirs. Of course, they're sort of you know garnering more and more information about you, which I think is also appealing to SoftBank. Yeah, I think something that people don't fully understand is SoftBank is pretty aligned with Toyota. If you ever spend time in Japan, you realize that Toyota is really like the Bank of Japan. It's considered to be the the company in Japan because it generates a tremendous amount of cash and it's a tremendous amount of national pride. And I think some of the moves here around the auto industry is done in conjunction with Toyota. So they look at ride sharing, they look at what's happening in self-driving cars and look at the transformation in the auto sector as a big national issue. And I think, I'm not saying that they work hand in hand in everything, but I think Toyota and SoftBank do collaborate and so when you think about the place in auto, and then we'll talk about Cambridge, which mm-hmm. is in the telematic space, there is a Toyota angle to it that people don't fully appreciate. And I think that's worth exploring. That is interesting. I don't know what SoftBank's relationship is with Toyota. Have they partnered on, on anything? I don't think they have a formal relationship at the fund level. But I just think that when you look at, I mean, there, has, there is a method to this madness. Mm-hmm. Massa didn't get to where he is without thinking through it. Some of the stuff he does is way out there, but I think, you know, like Zoom on the pizza side, Mm -hmm. that I don't fully appreciate. But the thing around auto, he has thought through and is building a portfolio. It's like it's entirely piece by piece assembling a chessboard in the auto space. Um, well, I think you can definitely see that on on Cambridge. I mean, talking about another massive round mm-hmm. this week, uh, a $500 million infusion from the Vision Fund. Um, and this is only the second round that the company has received. But they, Cambridge or, or CMT does sort of telematics. So they do all this sort of data analysis and data analytics for, for cars. And I, I think this is another example of where there is both a business, but also sort of the strategic element where, you know, as SoftBank gets more data and understands more of the kind of users of cars and autos, um, there's just so many fringe benefits that you use that data for. A lot of it is also tied to the steam around data and location. So if you look at what he loved about ride sharing, with ride sharing, you build a map of where people move. Mm-hmm. Now you add that up with FAIR, get around in Cambridge. In essence, he knows where the population of the world moves from one place to the other. That's actually really important long term. It's also vaguely creepy, I feel like, given the uh, the recent kind of Facebook disclosures we've gone through. I think that sort of technology would be a lot more interesting to me a year ago before I became more paranoid about my personal privacy. Um, <laughs> I, I'm only half joking when I say that. I mean, I, I know we need to examine like flows of people and cars around the world, but I just don't trust anyone not to properly anonymize the data. I'm pretty sure it'll be sucked into some ad platform and used against me. Um, but, you know, hell. It is. Well, I think it is interesting because I think doesn't Tesla take most of its data from its cars as well? Like I, I think all the auto manufacturers are trying to figure out how do they get data back from the users back into the flow, right? Whether that's the product development, whether that's um, licensing and insurance and a bunch of other kind of ancillary products, um, you know, there has to be that loop back to the parent company. Yeah. So I think it, we're, we're going to see it, whether the privacy exists or not, we're going to see it. No, look, privacy is a real issue, but, but 
I think somebody mentioned here about Toyota. Toyota's biggest advantage in terms of winning the race for a self-driving car is the fact that every Toyota, every te- sorry, every sorry Tesla, mm. Tesla's biggest advantage in winning the self-driving r- race is the fact that every Tesla sends back an incredible amount of data back, which allows them to optimize and make Tesla's autopilot better. And there's no doubt that that's one of the key determinants of why they are moving ahead in the self-driving race. Yeah, which is a multi-billion dollar, I mean, it's by a multi-ten of billion dollar result. I mean, everyone thinks that this is going to be the next thing. No one's got it yet. So if you can get an advantage, I mean, that could be worth your entire market cap in five years. Hey, everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by SharesPost. It's an enormous, enormous space. But uh, we need to talk about Relay Therapeutics, which also raised $400 million from the Vision Fund this week. Yeah, the uh, puny round for the Vision yeah, Fund. So, so Danny, what, what is a real... We're only talking about things about 500 million. 400 million is too small. <laughs> exactly. one, one quick mention. So FAIR actually came... That that investment, that $385 million, came from SoftBank. And it's not yet in the Vision Fund, but it may be transferring that oh, to the I Vision see. Fund. Okay. And, and I'm not really sure why it does that sometimes. Venky, I don't know if you have any particular insight into this, but... Yeah, so, so there are a couple of elements. One, if you know how the Vision Fund is structured, which a lot of people don't understand from the outside, Outside, mm. forty-five billion comes from uh, the the PIF fund, which is Saudi Arabia. Mm. Then a bunch comes from SoftBank, Mubadala, which is from Abu Dhabi, came in. Now the they, guys they have fifteen million. They have fifteen billion. Mm-hmm. The guys yeah, from right. Saudi Arabia and Mubadala do have veto rights. So when we talk about rework later on the show, that's what they're exercising. You need to get the approval to do it. So sometimes Massa says, "I don't want to wait. Mm. I'm going to go ahead and make the investment. I'll make it out of SoftBank." And then if they make any investment over 100 million out of SoftBank, the Vision Fund has the right to absorb it at some point. So this is to make sure that the Vision Fund has the first choice. So one of the things that could be happening, I don't know exactly, is that he might not have gone through the process for the Vision Fund. Mm -hmm. So he'll expedite it with SoftBank money and then it'll get absorbed later. But if PIF and Mubadala push back and say no, Mm -hmm. which is what we are hearing on WeWork, Mm -hmm. then he can't do it. Right. Okay, interesting. But I'm sorry, Danny. Let's talk about Relay, and then we'll talk about WeWork really quickly. Yeah, so Relay is another biotechnology company, um, and it's described as a protein motion uh, research company. So the, the the goal is to use certain um, sort of molecular techniques in order to um, really accelerate drug discovery. Um, and this is sort of similar to last week's discussion around Zymergen, which I believe, Connie, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. had talked a little bit about. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. So so as I, I was I don't know anything about Relay. Is Relay a direct competitor to Zymergen? No, no, but they're sort of in the same context. So in Zymergen's case, they're trying to create these sort of molecular manufacturing machines, mm-hmm. um, again, for the drug discovery process. But I think in both cases, what's interesting here is that SoftBank seems to have a kind of deep biotech thesis, mm-hmm. uh, which traditionally isn't you know kind of common. Uh, they're usually in specialized firms, but at least at the growth stage, it seems like they're quite willing to cross over that chasm uh, and invest in some very, very deep technology startups. It's interesting. Yeah, we should definitely pay closer attention to that part of its portfolio. There, we talk so much about its sort of fintech bets and of course it's uh logistical plays but uh, i haven't been paying close enough attention to um biotech and in fact i was sort of surprised they put quite so much into zybergen last week even though they were um an earlier investor but the company that they uh seem most sort of fascinated by um as the Venky was talking about is we were <laughs> they i mean SoftBank plus we work equals hearts, I guess. <laughs> but um but it's interesting so you know we were just saying so uh, Venki was saying Abu Dhabi owns 
you know, $15 billion stake in this, in the vision fund. Um, Saudi Arabia owns a $45 billion stake. I don't know that they've said no outright to Masayoshi son, the CEO of SoftBank previously. I don't know if they're going to say no now, but the Wall Street Journal reported yesterday that he's been wanting to take a bigger stake, a majority position in WeWork. Um, and I guess the thinking is, from what I read, um, they're not that excited about the idea because they see WeWork very much as a real estate play. They already own a lot of real estate. They're investing in WeWork. I mean, excuse me, they're investing in SoftBank in order to get more into sort of, you know, pure tech, apparently. So and, there's, and, and there's to diversify the Middle Eastern economy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people also don't realize how the investment is structured. I'm not sure about Mubadala, but with PIF, the mm-hmm. $45 billion, that's kind of like a debt, not equity. So this is, I know, technical and my- No, I'm interested. Um, I think we're all interested. So the way the most venture capital partnerships are structured, people invest in you in equity, mm-hmm. and then they give you $100, and then if you make that $100, $200, you give them back the $100, and then you get 20% of the profits. Mm-hmm. But the way PIF has structured its investment in SoftBank is they get an 8% interest payment right. every year whether or not. So that means they get $3.2 billion roughly every year. Um, And then after they get the debt payment, SoftBank gets to keep 80% of the profits, not PIF, and they get 20% back. So in many ways, they are a debt entity, and they are just looking at this as an 8% Mm -hmm. yield. And so you can imagine if you put $16 billion into WeWork Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work out so well, that's a real issue for them. And I think that's part of the pushback you see because it's not just real estate, but it's also the size of that investment relative to the entire fund. Well, also, well, and I mean, because, just to add to that, I mean, I think people are terrified of the valuation of it. So it's not just the fact that it's a concentration into one investment or one sector, but also into this company at a valuation that people don't really understand. So it's probably three things at once that are kind of coming together to make this pushback happen. I, I think it's a reasonable pushback, frankly. Right. So, so, uh, uh, according to the journal, the deal being discussed would include ten billion more from SoftBank, which would be buying out existing uh, shareholders, plus another six billion in new capital for WeWork over the next three years, which would come in like two billion dollar chunks each year. Um, that's obviously a lot of money. Um, SoftBank has already invested. Uh, let's see, I think it made like a four billion dollar investment, and then guys, remember we were talking earlier this year about another the three billion dollar warrant. Yeah, yeah, warrant. So, so which it won't presumably they would invest next year, but I think it expires September twenty nineteen. So they have okay. some time to decide whether to put the money in or not. But that would be okay, seventeen okay. point. So that would be seven point seven billion total. No, seven point four billion total just for those two instruments before anything else goes in, which is already a ridiculous bet on one company, right? Right, right, right. Anyway, so the, basically, the, the bottom line is the new investment would value WeWork at $36 billion, um, and it would bring SoftBank and its affiliates' total investment in the company to more than $24 billion, which is uh, apparently more than the, the you know investors can stomach, at, at least as of this moment. But, you know, I mean, it's hard to blame them, no matter what you think of their LPs, which we've talked about repeatedly in the show. Um, it's a scary time to be investing in WeWork. I mean, we're, we seem to be sort of on the precipice of a p- potential recession right now. And I think the question for WeWork has always been, and their concern seems to be, what happens in a downturn to this company? Yeah. I mean, the scale of these numbers are staggering. I just, I just want to make sure people understand the context of the entire venture industry, the entire venture industry invested $70 billion last year. That's it. 
I'm talking about the entire venture industry. And now we are talking about one company taking $16 billion, mm-hmm. almost you know, one-fifth of all of venture capital, and put in by one investor. <laughs> right. And what's what's interesting too is Adam Newman, the CEO of the company, would still own have control of the company. Even if SoftBank Steel went through and it was the majority sh- shareholder of the company, the way it's structured, his shares give him 10 times the voting power of anyone else. So uh, I, I think that they don't like that as well. But, you know, I did have a chance to talk to um, Adam last year at one of our disrupt shows and I and I asked what happens in a recession um, because you know even as of last year it seemed inevitable at some point um, if we haven't entered one right now and his argument was basically that business is a flexible thing and space is fixed and flexibility uh, in a recession is a much needed product so I you know I think other people would probably counter that companies are just going to head their cut their head count and move I mean in small th- there's, spaces, but I don't know. there's some absolute some merit to what <laughs> he's saying which is that when when you enter a recessionary phase or when there's uncertainty in the market, people don't want to enter into long-term leases mm-hmm. and a WeWork will feel like a much safer, easier alternative than mm-hmm. entering into a long-term lease. Now, the difference is WeWork is entering into 10-year-plus leases. Right. And so they are locked in on their cost structure. And the bet they are making is that in a downturn, people will flock to them and that will n- help uh, negate the long-term leases they have. The only question is we don't know. We haven't had this experiment done yet, and we're going to do yes. it at a pretty big scale. Right. And that's, I think, I think the bigger thing that's going on here that I find fascinating is that SoftBank is investing money in a lot of cases in things which are not proven yet, and they're investing money at a scale no one has seen. So let's think about this company in Cambridge, right? They only raised one round so far. They only have, I think, like 60 or 70 people. Now, I don't know the company. They might be the most amazing company in the world. But in my venture experience of 20 years, you take a 70% company that has so far raised less than 15 million mm-hmm. so far, and you suddenly give them 500 million, I'm not even sure they will know what to do with the mm-hmm, capital. Mm-hmm. And usually that is not a good. When you give, when you drop helicopter so much money in, uh, you know, I think it creates all kinds of distortionary effects in the companies and the ecosystem that we don't fully understand. I'll give you an example of something that um, will will play out, right? So if you if you follow Zoom, which mm-hmm. is a pizza, well, it's not know. it's not really a pizza company. It's it's a logistics company that wants to license its technology. So, guys, listening, um, it's if you haven't heard of Zoom, um, it's best known for sort of delivering uh, a robotic mating, making making. Um, Pizza, pizza uh, in a truck, <laughs> well, but I think it has. I think it sort of has ambitions actually to sort of reach people in parts of the world that, you know, I, I've talked to the CEO in the past, and he's got sort of like loftier ambitions. And you might think, based on the fact that they're making pizza in a truck, yeah, yeah, this is less about Zoom. Mm-hmm. I mean, Zoom could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about it, but I'm just saying that if you end up capitalizing a company like that, now imagine they might opt to pay their drivers a different rate because they can afford to pay it because they have this big capital chest mm-hmm, space. Mm-hmm. What does that do to the FedEx and UPS driver who sees that the Zoom driver might be getting 25% more because they have this capital base that FedEx and, and uh, UPS don't? Suddenly you have this distortionary effect on the labor force that's changed because you have so much capital coming in. And what I'm trying to say is this is happening in different sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. For example, WeWork is signing up some major leases from landlords that's actually giving cash away that 
lots of landlords are really happy about. But we don't know what's going to happen if that cash machine, that soft bank, stops funding mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. And this is the long-term distortionary effects of capital that we haven't seen before because we've never had a player come in with this amount of capital. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. This is going to be a very long uh, <laughs> we're, story. We're not done with this. And sure. uh, if you don't like the Vision Fund, um, you're just not <laughs> going to like equity for the next couple of years. Sorry. Uh, but we're going to scoot off uh, of SoftBank. Um, so if you don't like it, you're welcome. Uh, and we're going to talk quickly about Pinterest. Now, we talked about Pinterest on the show a couple of weeks ago in kind of our Decacorn IPO show, I think, kind of looking ahead at what was going to happen in 2019. And then right after that, uh, the journal reported that Pinterest may be exploring, I think it was in April uh, IPO for next year. So right on kind of schedule with everyone's expectations. And there were a couple of new numbers in the mix that I wanted to throw out. So according to the journal's report, uh, Pinterest will do a little bit more than $700 billion in revenue in 2018. And I looked back at the numbers from 2017 in which they did $473 million in revenue. It's up about 50%, give or take a couple percentage points. So that's kind of the rough growth range. And just keep in mind, Pinterest mm-hmm. lost, I think, about $100 million in 2017 and 2016. So if it lost that amount again, it would be about a negative 14% uh, net margin and 50% growth, which works out to roughly the rule of 40 you'd hope for when you're going public. So kind of in the right range to go public, definitely big enough. And uh, the question then becomes, at what price will it go out? And just keep everyone kind of in sync with where it was. Pinterest is worth, I think, between 12 and $12.5 billion as of its last private round. So that's kind of the numbers. I, I, I'm curious what we think. And uh, I don't know, Danny, you've been, you and I talk about this stuff a lot. So what's your take on uh, Pinterest kind of like path to the public markets here as 19 kicks off? You know, we can be a little bit cynical or negative, I think, sometimes with these valuations. But look, they're growing 50% revenues year over year. Um, They're going to hit almost a billion in revenue uh, in 2019. Uh, We don't know what the profitability looks like, but clearly they're working on it. And much like the Facebook story, I think that there's a clear path to profitability for this sort of company. So look, other than the social media market crashes, I mean, Twitter is down 11% today. This is where we tape on Thursday, but at close was down 11%. Facebook's also been hit pretty hard this week. You know, other than the social media being a tough market, I think Pinterest has a pretty clear path to a fairly easy IPO process. Yeah, as long as you get the pricing right. Also, Danny, uh, five demerits for yawning on the show. I heard that. And that's the very first time. <laughs> you need some coffee. Yeah, it's like 102 Danny, episodes, we 48,000 cans of Red Bull, and one yawn. And it's the New, it's the new Yorker who yawned, just we to be clear. It's not SF. <laughs> and, and Danny's I've not been up since that early um, one more data point before we kind of uh, talk about the, the the market itself is that Pinterest I think I think the, the article said hit 250 million monthly active users in uh, September of this year so the question then becomes how much does that grow between now and its IPO date does that level of growth make investors feel less worried so they don't end up in a snap situation in which Snapchat went public and then its growth stopped and then its stock fell, you know, by 80 percent, whatever it's been. I mean, one thing I we are not investors in Pinterest and just full disclosure, we are investors in Uber and a bunch of other companies, but we are not investors in Pinterest. I'm actually a bull on the company. And part of that is that I think when you look at some of the social media challenges Facebook and Twitter face, Pinterest doesn't face it. There are no trolls, Russian trolls trying to do that. 
for the most part, I haven't seen Pinterest do sell your data. They are using the data they have on Pinterest to do advertisements on Pinterest, but they're not brokering the data to others. So I think they might be insulated from some of the social media issues that Facebook and Twitter have. And I think they play into probably the healthiest part of the economy. I mean, I have three daughters at home and I got to tell you, they spend a lot of time on Pinterest and they buy stuff. (laughs) Well, you know, one thing, uh, the the one sort of challenge I could see for the company is that it is ad driven. All of its revenues from ads. And if we are entering into a recession, isn't that usually one of the first things that gets cut? I mean, sort of, I feel like, you know, ad-driven businesses may be the most susceptible to... Uh... So, so I, th- I think there's a nuance in ad-driven. Mm-hmm. There's what I call brands, and you're absolutely right. When it's a brand image-driven advertising, that gets cut. Mm-hmm. Response, direct response does not get cut. In fact, direct response does well. If you look back and look at Google's growth, mm-hmm. Google grew tremendously in 2002 to 2004 when the tech economy was in a was not a funk. Mm-hmm. Part of it is like search ads are very direct response. You are actually doing something where you click. And so if Pinterest has a lot of brand, they'll be affected. But if Pinterest has a lot of direct response, they actually will be fine because those are very hard ROI. Very intentional uh, click-throughs. Okay, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, and if Pinterest can nail that part of its uh, its revenue model, hopefully we'll get a lot of notes about this in its S1, it's going to be pretty safe. And I think that might, might actually give us some extra durability on the valuation front as it goes public. But uh, we kind of segued ourselves, so I'm going to go ahead and grab this one and, and, and move this along. Today was uh, a terrible day in the stock market for everybody. Globally, U.S., you name it, and tech stocks really got kind of beat up. Danny mentioned before that you know Twitter was down 11 percent. Uh, Dropbox fell beneath its uh, IPO price. Snap fell under five dollars a share for a minute. Facebook was down again. The big five were all down. Uh, it, it was kind of chaotic. And I, I, one thing that struck me today, and I don't know if if this is just a lag in the private markets that we're seeing, but today there were a number of enormous rounds uh, announced. And also today, the public markets kind of fell apart. And so we're seeing right now a pretty much a gap or a distinction between what's going on or being reported in the private markets and what's happening in the public markets. Now, we all know that between when a venture round closes and when it becomes public, there is a time period between of weeks or months. So we're not seeing the exact same results at the exact same times, but certainly it feels weird to see so much doom and gloom on the public side and so much pessimism, sorry, optimism on the private side. So I don't know. Vinky, when you think about what's going on in the stock market, uh, are the private markets too optimistic or are the public markets too pessimistic? I can't quite figure this out. Well, I feel like you have to draw a distinction between early stage venture capital and late stage venture capital when you talk about this, right? Early stage venture capital, when you're thinking about the stock market, when you do early stage venture capital, is like trying to predict the Super Bowl winner of 2022 based on how teams are playing today. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. irrelevant what happens in the public markets today because when you do early stage company, they're gonna it's five to seven years before they even think about going public. So it doesn't factor in. It should not factor in from a reality standpoint. There might be a psychological impact, but from a real impact, zero. Now, but it will impact your valuations though, right? Well, I mean, if your public comps get, get wrecked, you're gonna have a harder time raising the price you wanted in your next round, even if you are only at Series C and therefore far away from the public markets. Yeah, it does. And and I was gonna get to the fact that there should be a very high correlation between what happens in the public markets and what happens in the private markets in the late stage, especially the mega size rounds. And what you're seeing today is a divergence, right? Where the public markets have fallen apart in the last in December but you're still seeing all these 100, 200, 300 million dollar rounds. 
And I think some of that is just a lag because these rounds were done probably 45 to 50 days ago or they were the term sheets were signed mm-hmm. at least two months ago and they might only close two weeks ago. I think as someone who is active and, you know, we do have a growth fund, I can tell you that the private markets have also started cooling off uh, mm. in December. Uh, I do think that deals are getting a lot longer mm-hmm. and valuations are, are definitely coming down. Uh, what no one knows, again, is what SoftBank does because SoftBank is, and I'm coming back to this, it's like a lot of the big deals are driven by SoftBank, mm-hmm. uh, are driven either by them or by the fear of them. And that is a distortionary effect we still don't know. But take that out, I think you'll definitely see a slowdown in late stage uh, venture capital. And I also think it could have an impact on the companies, including your portfolio company, Uber, going public. I mean, we'll see. But uh, I'd done a story this week on whether Uber and Lyft and Pinterest and Slack may have a little bit missed their window, uh, or at least they're going to have to sort of fight through some bad conditions in the first quarter or two. Um, And the sort of IPO experts that I talked to just said, you know, there's this cycle where people get freaked out. They start redeeming their shares. Institutional investors uh, start giving uh, new issuers, you know, um, they're not able to bet on them as freely as they they might have in the past. I mean, I, I certainly think certain companies will fare fairly well despite this, but it's not, it's not, you know, going to be I, I read the piece, mm-hmm. right? And then I think if the piece was, hey, if you had a crystal ball and you could say when was the best time to go public, mm-hmm. you would say the first best time to go public was in 2018. Right, April. Uh, April, <laughs> right? right? But but the best companies can go public anytime. Mm-hmm. And and I think that uh, the ones that are struggling or the ones that are iffy, they may not be, but mm-hmm. the really good ones can go public. And I always tell people it's not about going public. Going public is a financing event. It's about are you going to stay public and mm-hmm. be meaningfully big and successful in the public markets five years out. Right. In which case, when you go public and what price you get is less relevant than where you are five years from now. Sure. And I mentioned in the piece Facebook, which went out at 38 and then tanked, went down to $18. And I don't even know where it's trading today. Of course, it's trading today less than it was you know, a week ago. But um, right, it, it, to your point, it doesn't really matter well, as much as people um, think. But I also think what you're to see is a, a, a pattern where companies go public and then they sort of just kind of go down on the market. So we saw SoftBank this week go uh, their mobile IPO uh, for their mobile division uh, and the Japanese uh, stock exchange, and it went down 15% the first day, 5% the second day. So it's entirely possible that there's a group of investors who will buy into the IPO and then it sort of sinks you know, post uh, going public. Um, and quite frankly, we're seeing the same mm-hmm. thing in China. So, you know, this has also been a really bad year uh, for China stocks. So a, a couple of companies, including Baidu, Meitu and Dianping, which announced layoffs this week, Sina Weibo, JD, Ctrip, you know, a lot of the tech darlings from China hit 52-week lows this week. Um, so it is extremely tough in that market as well. So the kind of challenges we're seeing in the U.S. are certainly global and are hitting everyone. Uh, you know, um, I don't know if anyone has thoughts on this. I, I still, uh, it's not so clear to me how much China's slowdown uh, could impact us and and when. I mean, obviously, we're feeling some of it. I'm just not sure if it's going to get much worse. I mean, we're close import-export partners with them. They're- I mean, so we are globally interconnected mm-hmm. for sure. Some would argue that it's some of the things we have done in America that has 
driven the slowdown in China, right? So part of why the Chinese economy slowed down in 2018 has been both the tariffs as well as the talk about tariffs mm -hmm. that has resulted in capital being shaky around how to invest. So I think there's no doubt to me that our economies are interconnected. There's real impact. There's also a whole bunch of behavior a lot of, so for example, there's this Chinese company called O4 Bikes. Oh, yeah. announced that they might, go, they might go bankrupt. Well, think about it. What has happened was that there's a massive flow of capital that has flown into these sectors because of interest rates being low. Mm. You had no choice. I mean, the way to think about it is that um, when interest rates were where they were, it pushed people on the risk curve to go and do aggressive things. And there's so much capital out there that even if you push a small percentage out, that capital comes. And it ended up going to China and funding a bunch of people to do unproductive things with the hope that once they get to a certain scale, they can be profitable. Well, now that capital is being pulled back because just as interest as interest rates go up, you suddenly say, well, I don't need to be that risky. I can just put my money in my CD and get 2.5% on a one-year CD, where even 24 months ago, you'd have gotten zero. Mm -hmm. And when that capital pulls back, it's sort of like the tide is coming mm -hmm. out. Yes. And, and when the tide comes out, you're going to find out who's swimming naked and who's got shorts on. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in China are caught swimming naked. Yeah. And that is uh, kind of the ideal note, I think, to end equity's uh, kind of main 2018 run on. A, a nice a nice cliffhanger <laughs> people, of people risk are and naked. fear. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the vision of <laughs> Not the literal sense, in the metaphorical sense, if you will. Um, but the good news is, is that uh, we have one more episode coming out this year. Uh, Connie has an excellent interview. It's going to be out around Christmas time. But then for the very first time in the history of this show, we are going to take a two-week hiatus. So I think it's the first two weeks of January, uh, equity will be off and we will be relaxing in uh, various beaches around the world. Haha, <laughs> kidding, we'll actually be at work, but we will not be recording. Um, <laughs> we're going to give ourselves just a little teeny bit of time off around the CES cycle uh, so we can all breathe. But we will be back uh, after the holiday episode, I think right around the middle of January. So we're not going to go too far. So stick around. Uh, but once again, thanks to everyone for listening. It's been a tremendous year, and uh, I'm looking forward to whatever happens around the world uh, in 2019. So thanks, thanks everybody. everybody. Thank you, guys, and thank you, Venky, for coming. Thank you for having me. My my wife always says I have the perfect face for radio, so I, now <laughs> I know why that's true. <laughs> All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. <laughs>